Thanks for listening to the New Life Church Searcy podcast. If you'd like to get connected to what God is doing at the Searcy campus, you can text the word Searcy to 88000. There you can give online, get connected to a life group, find your place in a serve team, and so much more. You can also find today's message notes in the YouVersion Bible app. Just tap the link in the episode description to follow along during the sermon and save notes directly to your phone. Now prepare your hearts to hear a great word from God today. Right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Wow. How's everybody doing? There you go. All right. Can we put our hands together for those watching online today? We're so glad to have those guys with us. Thanks for watching, tuning in. Um, I want to make a couple of announcements before I get into the message. And uh, the first one is uh, regarding resource. I just want to uh, thank you and uh, challenge you, those of you that need to be challenged, and encourage those that need to be encouraged. But thank you so much for your giving. Um, one thing about our church that I love is 15% of everything that comes in, so 15 cents on every dollar, is missional. And so we plant churches with it. That's where we do benevolence and outreaches, whether it's locally, or we push that to some international platform. Um, we just uh, give 15% right off the top to do that. So you're helping us plant churches all the time, which is a big, a big passion of mine. I believe in the local church. I know that you do too. And so thank you, as always, for helping us to operate well and to uh, also do things outside of our church. So thank you so much for that. Second thing is we are starting a class that we have talked about for a couple of weeks now. It's called Merge, and Merge is a class for those that are engaged or are seriously dating, okay? And so it is eight weeks. It costs 50 bucks. If you don't have the money, we'll scholarship you. Don't, don't let that hold you back from taking it. Just covers the curriculum. Um, but it starts next Sunday, Zach and Cass Hall are the ones that are teaching that class. They've taught it many times. They're well-versed in it, do a phenomenal job. And the best way to sign up for that class is to text the word Circe to 88,000. And once you do that, there's going to be a few tabs there. One's going to say Merge. Just select it and uh, give them your information. Then they will reach out, out to you. So text Circe to 88,000. Okay, again, for engaged couples or seriously dating, this class does some great stuff because it either makes you want to get married or makes you not want to get married. So uh, either way, it's going to be helpful to you. So um, I want to um, recap. We've been in a, in a series now. This is week four. We're finishing it. If I could give you an image of today, it would be that we're about 10,000 feet off the ground, landing gears coming down. Um, we're seeing things a lot more clearly, and um, we're gonna about to land it. So I'm going to recap the past three weeks. I'm going to do that quickly, then give you some new content and some focus questions to walk out of here today uh, to wrap up these thoughts on deconstruction. Before I do that... I want to open this up with just a little bit of a conversation that took place in the movie The Hobbit. And um, we, we've been talking about a journey of faith the past three weeks, if you haven't been able to join us. Um, but we've been talking about how to search for faith without losing it. Okay, so without losing faith. So the more I know about Jesus leads me to greater depth rather than causes greater resistance. That's what we've, we've been talking about. So in the movie The Hobbit, Gandalf begins to talk 
and he's talking to Bilbo Baggins. And I'm really jealous because I wish my name was Bilbo Baggins. That's kind of a neat name. Um, and so uh, Gandalf says, I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging, and it's very difficult to find anyone. And Bilbo says, I should think so in these parts. We're plain, quiet folks, and we have no use for adventure. And Gandalf says, well, you'll have a tale or two to tell of your own when you come back. And Bilbo says, can you promise that I'll come back? And he says, no. And if you do, you will not be the same. And when I read that this week, I thought, man, that's exactly kind of what we've been talking about because as we draw closer to Christ, as we are in this process of being more and more and more like Jesus or sanctification, to use a theological word, as we're becoming more and more like Jesus, we're becoming less and less like ourselves. And so once we come back from this journey, you aren't yourself. Once you've been forgiven or restored or something in you that was dead has been resurrected, you just can't deny those things and it causes you, it causes you to be a different person. It's very, very transformational um, as we are getting closer to God and closer um, to the knowledge of Jesus. So I want to recap. I know that some of you that have been here every single week, this may be a boring few minutes for you, but for those of you that are new, this is going to be beneficial, and it's going to help me communicate um, best as, as I land this today. So in week one, we defined what deconstruction is, and spiritual deconstruction is very different um, or modern deconstruction is very different than um, historical discipleship or traditional discipleship. And we talked about how the definition of deconstruction is to take out something of whole and pull it apart piece by piece um, until we can uh, try to lay it over the grid of our lives, using that as a filter to go, even though I've experienced this or culture says this or I feel this way, um, do I still believe uh, the same way that I did believe a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or what I was taught as a kid in Sunday school? Do I still believe that now that I'm an adult or now that I'm in my 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s plus? Um, as, as life is changing and seasons are changing, do I still believe the same way that I did? And the difference there between deconstruction and discipleship is uh, deconstruction has a tendency to believe that the Bible uh, may or may not have been inspired by God. It may or may not have error. Um, you, uh, it may or may not be relevant or applicable, and that it's optional. So I can look at it and say, do I believe that enough to make it part of my daily life? If so, great. If not, I leave it behind. So then when you start reading and studying Scripture, you develop big gaps in, in your Bible of things you believe and things you don't believe. Now, traditional discipleship is a huge difference because traditional discipleship says it is completely relevant. It was totally inspired by God. It is, it is truth, um, and it is not optional. It is a standard that we have been given by which we live our lives in a way that we can follow Christ. 
So the way most of us grew up was through a theological lens of going, we have scripture, it is true, and therefore I will spend my whole life's energy adapting my life, my thoughts, my behaviors, my goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, based off the truth, the standard of this book. It is, it is greater than my own thoughts and ideas, and if they, they will always, it will always trump my ideas. And so we ended up on week one, I gave you three examples of deconstruction versus discipleship. The first one was a little late Lego house, just the front of it. And uh, the point there was, it kind of looks like a house, but it's not a house. And oftentimes deconstruction can leave us with a view that says, you know, it, it, it looks like, like Jesus, but it's not. Um, it speaks a language like, like Jesus. It's held in a church. Um, they, they talk a lot about it. They read a scripture from, from the Bible. But all in all, when it comes down to it, there's something really missing there. Looks like Jesus. It's not Jesus. The second um, example was a Jenga game. And we talked about how if you just pull one core piece out, the whole thing crumbles. And the point there was that there's a popular teaching right now, Jesus was a good guy, he was a prophet, he did some supernatural things, but he was not virgin born, he is not deity, great guy though, but he's not the son of God. Well, when you pull that out, the whole thing collapses because the canon of scripture is pointing to the finished work of Jesus, and if he was just a good guy, it doesn't matter. Because hundreds of thousands of men died on Roman crosses. But it was about his blood, his agenda, his deity, his choice to come, his choice to die, his choice to give up his life, spill his blood as the ultimate sacrifice for mankind. He has to be deity. Or nothing in Genesis matters and nothing in Revelation matters because they both point back toward each other at, at this crux of the crucifixion. So you can't pull that out. And then the final thing was I talked about discipleship looking more like a Rubik's Cube. It's whole, it's identifiable, and it's intact. And so we, we hold on to it, but it's shifting, it's moving. We're trying to grow. We're trying to put the colors together. We're trying to connect the dots. We're trying to make theology work. It's got to make sense. We're wanting to grow in it. And over time, it gets better and better and better and more whole and more complete. But it's not a part. It's shifting. And so I talked about sometimes that's an exhausting process as you work out your salvation. Sometimes you got to put it down. you got to let it go for a minute. you gotta, you got to just live by principle and trust that, that the Lord is in your life and just go. And other times that are more intent, weeks of prayer, weeks of fasting, you're going to pick it up and get back to a transition or tra transformation of wanting to know more and study more as you shift and, and you move the pieces together. But this would be what, what traditional discipleship would, would, would look like. The second week, we talked about why people are deconstructing. And week two was a little pungent. It, it, had, it had a punch to it. It was strong because the why, even though we just talked about four columns, and there's many, 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 many of those, there are four significant columns. The first one was that you have a moral conflict with Scripture. So sometimes you rearrange your faith and you rearrange the Bible and you rearrange the story or context of the Bible because you have a moral conflict. 
meaning that it tells you to do something and you don't want to do it. It tells you to behave in a certain way and you would rather not because the other way feels good or it's been part of your life or it's a habit for you. So instead of work on it or turn it over to the Spirit, we resist it and we have a moral conflict with Scripture. So we block a piece out. It's like uh, reading the Ten Commandments and saying, I promise I won't ever murder, but I will lie. Okay, so you, you can't just pick and choose. The second big column was a cultural conflict with Scripture. We talked about how strong culture was, how all of us have to live in one, but not, not be of it. So we're, we can get out here and go to church and work our jobs and love our families and enjoy the beauty of life and love people deeply, but we don't have to be engaged in everything that culture brings up. But culture is very strong, and every generation has one, and every generation has an ethos behind it. And so there's something that, that drives every single culture and every single era of time and they're so uh, prevalent that historically or sociologically, you can look back and you can identify them. You can call out, for this era of time, this is what, what was driving that. And all the way up to right now where you and I sit. So culture is strong and culture is loud. Um, and culture has pressure with it. And culture wants you to come along with it. And so if you're the tip of the spear in your family or your business or your church, and you're having to lead that with, with uh, some moral construct, sometimes it's very, very difficult because you're the first one to hit this wall of culture. And it's very easy for you to go, I'm just going to bend to culture and go with what they're saying is okay to do under the guise of Scripture. So the third thing, which was really hard, and I would say probably applies to most of us in here, is an experiential conflict with Scripture. So... You have had something happen to you, or part of your story is very hard, and it's very tough, and it's very discouraging, and it's very disappointing or depressing. Because of that, you now use that experience as a filter by which you see and worship and serve God. And so that one isolated experience for you has now become theology, and you've built a doctrine around your experience, rather than to take the word at face value or a principle in Scripture, your experience rises above Scripture and becomes the most important thing by which you view God. And I said some really hard examples. I'm going to share those again so that you know what I'm talking about. Those three examples were this. I was molested. What kind of God would allow that? I lost my spouse to cancer. What kind of God would allow that? My wife and I want to have children. We love kids. We love each other, but we can't have children. What kind of God would allow that? And again, the angst that you have toward that experience are now like these glasses that I got on. You look through the experience at the world and at God and it's risen above Scripture. So in a way, you have deconstructed because you say, I don't believe in that anymore because of my experience. Fourth is also a hard one because it's spiritual abuse in the church. And what I talked about or the examples that I gave was maybe you attended a church that had a perfectionistic theology. So 
your church taught so much perfectionism, so much about behavior modification, that loving God lost its fun, the church has no zeal for you, um, the fact of, of having a life and raising children or living in a marriage with believers and being a part of a body of faith of believers, you, you could take it or leave it because you are beat down by perfectionistic teaching and theology. And so as an adult, you find yourself in a place where you have a lot of spiritual anxiety about eternity, about where you're going to go, about a habit or a hang-up that you're involved in that you can't seem to get over. It's like a wall that you're constantly coming up against. And you think, man, I, I'm in such terrible shape. I, I think it's easier for me to stay at home and not feel preached to and not feel taught, not feel confronted because I've tried church, I've tried doing it right, I've tried to be perfect, and I just can't be perfect. The Old Testament proved that we can't be perfect, right? I mean, you had this amazing interaction with God to a group of people. Let's just use the Israelites. Let's pick on them. It's always fun. And so we pick on them, bread falling from heaven. I'm tired of this bread. Um, you know, I, I, need, I need some meat. Okay, I'm going to send some birds. And, and then, you know, that happens. And then uh, my shoes aren't wearing out, and I kind of want them to because I'd like a new pair. I'd like just to move from Nike to Adidas, but these Nikes won't wear out. And God took care of them, and all they had was a complaint. You know, they were covered at night by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud by day, and yet they threw all their jewelry together, and Aaron the priest made a calf for them to worship. I mean, these are some messed up folks. Um, you know, at one point, you know, Moses is a guy who's doing some crazy things, I and mean, we've never seen anything like him before. If he did what he was doing now, he would be on every talk show um, and the cover of Charisma and probably Times Person of the Year because he took a stick and put it in a sea and it parted. And they said, if this guy didn't work out, we're going to stone him and go back to Egypt. Okay, they were just terrible, terrible folks. It was just a proving that mankind cannot do it on their own. We needed to be rescued. And so then, um, week three, last week, we talked about having more than the image of God, but having an experience. And I put up a, a picture of a westernized, European-inspired picture of a white Jesus, beautiful hair, and then talked about how that looks nothing like him. We just needed an image. We needed to say, this is what Jesus looks like. And I equated that to a picture I had on my wall when I was a kid of a Porsche and how I loved this Porsche, loved everything about it. But one day my buddy pulls up and he owns one and he throws me the keys. And for the first time I drove it and experienced it. And so once you've driven the Porsche, the poster won't do anymore because you have been there and sat in it and driven it and, 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 and felt it and heard the sounds of it. And I, I ended by, by saying that if you've ever experienced Jesus, if you've ever been forgiven or had grace extended or mercy given or had a part of you restored or had a part of you awakened or been given a calling or a passion for life, had any part of your life come back, the fact that you got up this morning and still had a mind that worked is miraculous 
And we can't go back to saying Jesus Christ was just a good guy. And these are the temptations of deconstruction to lure us from the power of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, and into a classroom of our own ideas. And then elevate them. And it's always a pride issue when we say the idea that I have is better than what God put together. It's a dangerous place. And it is the idea that drives deconstruction to say we can take Scripture apart, we can take it or leave it, it's full of errors. It's full of problems. It is historical in nature. It is poetry at best. And it's not the standard of truth. My own mind and ideas or collection of ideas from other people is greater than Scripture. So I want to land this today. I'm going to give you just a, a, couple, of, a couple of quick points. And these are going to be in the form of temptations. These are things that cause us, again, to be lured away, away from traditional discipleship and gravitate toward our own thoughts. The first thought I want to talk about is this, the first temptation, is that the soul needs to be managed. Okay, now I want to, I want to process this out with you because I think some of you are doing this and you don't know you're doing it. It's, it's unintentional. So you look at your life, you look at your soul, and you address it as you would anything else in your life as an adult, right? Our lives are about management. We manage homes, we manage relationships, we, ma we manage projects at work or school, we, we, uh, we, we manage data, we manage our routines, uh, we manage the lives of our children. Come on, somebody. We, we, we manage a lot of stuff. And... So much so are we tired of this that there's an entire generation now going, you know what, I don't want to manage anything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell everything I got. I'm going to move into a tiny house. And there are people who have lost their minds because they are married with three kids and a dog and they're moving into 400 square feet. Okay. Listen, this is the foundation of marriage therapy, okay? Because you're going to need it, okay? When you can reach over and grab a cup of coffee and turn on the shower and grab a book and slap your kid all in the same seat, you're going to need some help. But the issue there is I want to simplify, and I love that. I'm simple myself. I, I minimize everything I have. People who know me laugh because I give stuff away all the time. I let stuff go all the time because I, I'm not a collector of anything. But management gets exhausting. And I think because of that, this, this model, our westernized culture of surrounding ourselves with stuff, we're, we're having to manage our vehicles, get the oil changed, get, get, get the tires done. We manage our homes. We got to mow the yard. We got to have it power washed. We got to do, we got to make sure it's clean and operable and all the, we're, managed, we're managing relationships. I, we got to go on vacation so you and I will calm down. We got to, we, we got to do all, all these things, management, management, management. And we look at our soul and we say, I got to manage that too. And I want to encourage some of you to let go of that. Because your soul, I want you to hear me, your soul belongs to God. As a matter of fact, he says, you were bought with a price. It is not yours. 
There are things as part of your existence that you're going to have to manage. We manage our bodies. We're constantly going, you know, should I eat that box of Twinkies or have another glass of water? You know, it's just a conflict here. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I run three miles or just go to the mailbox and back? What, 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 what should I do here? And your, your body's going to die. It's going to. Doesn't mean you can't take care of it. That's great. But it's going to eventually one day lie down and not move again. The mind that you know of right now is going to leave. The older you get, it's going to get weaker and weaker and weaker. It's going to connect memories and experiences and facial recognitions. All that's going to fade eventually. If you live long enough, your children are going to walk in and you're not going to know them. The mind that you have one day is going to leave. Even if you die relatively young, you will graduate into an eternal existence where your mind becomes incredible, a fullness, a a revelation of all things. The mind as you know it will go away either by the grave, the rapture, and you experiencing eternity, or by old age. It's going to happen. But your soul belongs to God. You don't have to manage it. All you got to do is trust that God has it. And this is a point of anxiety for some of you. And I think it's sad because though we're we're supposed to be the people who have the greatest message, the strongest answer to the world's problems, we're supposed to have hope for humanity. Humanity. And we are so worried, wringing our hands about everything. Did I do everything right? Is my name really written down in the Lamb's Book of Life? Am I really going to make it? Like if I died today. When I was growing up, you didn't hear a sermon at, at, at the end of it. And I'm, I'm not ma- making fun here, but at the end of every message I heard growing up, they had to fuel hell, you know, until it got really hot. Like you could smell it in the church. You could smell sulfur. And it would end with, if you died right now. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Are there really just four of us in the room that heard this message? Raise your hand if you ever heard a message in with, yeah. If you died right now, and I mean right now, like you had a massive cardiac arrest right now, where would you go? And people are like, I do not want to go there. And people got saved, not because they love the Lord, but because they did not want to be dangled over the flames of hell. And now, here you are in your 40s, and you're walking around, oh man, I got to manage my soul. I gotta, I gotta get better. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do that. I gotta fix that. And I gotta fix that. And I gotta fix that. And you have worked yourself up into such a spiritual fit that you have no joy. You have no peace. You can't throw your shoulders back and know that God is working it out in you. He's got his hands in you. He's the owner of your soul, not the manager, the owner. 
He has got you. You are in his hand. He loves you. He adores you. The whole story was him chasing you, and he got you. And because of that, you can rest in him. Don't be tempted to deconstruct, to rid yourself of that anxiety. Don't deconstruct and throw things out of the scripture to ease yourself. Rest in him and trust in God. Can I get an amen right right there? That'd be great. Temptation number two is that you have to figure all this out at some point. Is that before it ends, this has to match. It's all the colors have to be in place, and it's all got to make sense, and it's all got to add up. That your mind, as obsessive as we are, and as routine driven as we are in our lives, that we have to take the entire story of Scripture, all the way from Genesis 1 through Revelation and into maps. And it's all got to make sense, and you've got to, to know it fully and completely before you hit eternity is not true. There are people who give their entire lives to this. I am not a theologian, not even close. I love to study scripture. I love religion. I love the local church. I love church planting. I love talking about anything with Jesus and ministry. I love it. My life is consumed by this process, and I'm not even close to getting there. All right? You have to let go of having to have everything answered and resolved and remedied in order to fully trust him. Don't be tempted to just cut things out of your Bible because it is mysterious or doesn't add up or doesn't make sense. I said this in week two, but if it all made sense, he would not be God. You want there to be a mystery in your theology. You want there to be a part of it that is so deep you're never going to get there and so high that you cannot climb there. You want it to be where he is so big and great and grand that you can't take him and put him in your pocket. Because if you can, he is not God, you are. You're a God to your own idea if you can take it and tuck it in your pocket and walk off. You want it to be big. You want some of it to scare you. You want some of it to go, wow, that is mind-blowing, and I don't know if I'm ever going to understand that. That's how I feel about the cross. I don't think we're ever going to know. I don't think we're ever going to fully get the magnitude of what it means for us to be saved. That when his blood started hitting the ground, there was something that happened that we're never going to understand. And I'm okay with that ambiguity. Temptation three, and I'm going to hurry. Temptation three is that you can become shipwrecked by extremes. All right? And I'm going to read, uh, I'm, I'm going to reference 1 Timothy 1 and 19. This is, again, Paul's letter to Timothy. He writes to two men. He writes to Hymenaeus and Alexander, and he, he, he says of them, they suffered a shipwreck with regard to the faith. Now, this is coming. This word shipwreck is not an accident. Paul was shipwrecked in his own story, in his own adventure and journey, his missionary journeys, his fourth. He gets shipwrecked. And he knows the difference between a storm and a shipwreck. He knows the difference between a seasonal storm and it's going to happen and everybody's going to do it, between losing the thing that you're floating on. And he's saying, if you're not careful... 
you can set out on a journey of faith and shipwreck yourself. If you're not careful, you can, you can drown. You, you can lose all footing. And it references this Jenga game. You, you can end up where you don't have anything. It just crumbles. you got pieces everywhere. Paul knew that he was writing to a church that had found themselves in a storm. Watch this. Where they were facing division on the inside and persecution on the outside. Now, who does that sound like? It sounds like us. It sounds like our culture. Do you know last year, and I, I told you this a few, a few series ago before the holidays, do you know that last year was the first year in American history where more churches closed than opened? First time. Churches are dividing. Churches that have been going for 50, 60 years, collapsing. Everybody gone one weekend. Boom, over. We were so blessed that during a time when everybody said, listen, you cannot gather, stay home, that you decided to stay together. Do you know that you gave more resource to us in 2020 than you did 2019? There is, there is division happening in the local church and persecution from the outside. You can't believe this way. They, they point at Scripture and say, you can't believe this way because we have people in the world that, that look this way and act this way and believe this way. And this, it, it can't be that you look at everything around us and say that this is wrong and it's ungodly and it's un unrighteous. So change your words. Persecution. It's going to get worse. Now I want to end today. I'm out of time, so I'm going to skip five pages down here. <laughs> if you're a note taker, I want to end today. I'm going to give you four quick, quick questions, and I mean that quick. I'm going to do this in four minutes. These are going to be questions that I want you to look at this four-part series, and I want you to ask yourself these questions in, in conclusion. When it comes to deconstruction or discipleship, the first one is this. Am I being led by the Spirit or by culture or by my circumstance or by my feelings? What is leading me on this journey to find out more about God? A part B question to that would be, who's in the driver's seat of your life? Is it the Spirit or is culture driving your life? Are your emotions leading your life? Is an experience that you've had leading your life? Or is the Spirit leading you into deep, deeper places? The second question is this. Am I truly seeking God or am I seeking those who will validate my opinion or stance or match my experience? And this is our, our humanity. This is a trap. It's a temptation. If you... Do not say what I need you to say. I'll find the people around me who can say it. We pick out everything this way. Your closest friends right now are probably people who believe similar to you. They find the same things funny as you do. It might be they have the same political stance as you, the same theological stance as you. 
They laugh the same things. They eat the same foods. They have, there, there's a lot of similarity. And you say, this is a good niche. It's a good fit. We have a lot of things in common. But we do the same thing with our, our theology. I don't want to be around somebody who confronts me and challenges me and does all these things. No, I, w- I want you to explain Jesus the way I view Jesus. And sometimes you've got to get in the presence of God and saying, Lord, confront me. Teach me. Shape me. Put me on the anvil. And make me more like Jesus. And it may hurt your feelings. You may look at something you've done your whole life and go, for me to go to the next level in serving God, I'm going to have to get on the anvil. Third, am I focused at all on what I think God should be doing? Again, this is, this is a, a major trap for an entitled culture. Am I focused too much on what I think God should be doing? In this next sentence, I'm going to say it hurts, but this is always a pride issue, and it always starts with the word I because it typically plays out this way. I think God should have done blank. And you and I could look. I can think of three or four in my own life, so that's how I'm going to preach it. I can think of three or four examples in my life where I thought, Lord, if you would have just done this, I wouldn't have had to walk through grief or crawl through a desert emotionally or relationally or spiritually. Have you just, if you would have done, can you just go with my idea for once? I can think of three or four of those. If you would have done that, Lord, I would be a totally different person than I am right now. And maybe that's the point. That you have gone through those things because now you're chiseled. Now you've, you've, had, you've lost some things. Now you've got a ministry. Now your calling and, and passion for life just got laser focused because you truly can show empathy. Don't fall into a trap of going, Lord, this is what you should have done, okay? And finally, and then I'm going to pray. Am I making long-term faith decisions over short-term emotions? Right? Are you looking to deconstruct because you're hurt or because you're mad or because you're discouraged or because you're disappointed because something in you feels broken, doesn't feel right, and that's driving you? on a journey of to deconstruct rather than disciple? If you've known me for any length of time, then you know what I'm about to share, but I just want to remind you that one little story in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Malchus is the guy that went to arrest Jesus and Peter reached out with his sword and cut his ear off. And I don't know if that was great swordsmanship or he was going for his head and Malchus moved and he caught his ear. But either way, he lost an ear. And Jesus does something amazing. He reaches down, grabs it, puts it back on. Here's, here's I've, I always teach this this way. Can you imagine what, what life would have been like had that not happened? And Malchus went and put his ear in a pickle jar and put some formaldehyde in there and he goes to church with it, 
He sits on the front row and he's got his ear in his pickle jar. And eventually your interest can't refrain itself and you go to Malchus and you say, hey, what you got in the pickle jar? So that, that's my ear. Why, why, why do you got your ear in a pickle jar? Oh, this, this is what the church did to me. See, when you get too close to those church people, they'll hurt you. I got really close to Jesus once and I lost an ear over it. Maybe, maybe we should all be careful around here to get hurt. See, you, you, you may give, give your money, but you know, sometimes they'll hurt you. I don't get in small groups because then people find out my stuff and then they hurt me. I come in late and I leave early because I want anybody to really connect with me, you know? Because the last couple places I went, they, they hurt me. And now everything that you do when you search through Jesus is through that lens. And the Lord is saying, I just want you to trust me. So, to say all these things, four messages on deconstruction, the goal is this. Know more about God without losing faith. Get into the Word and ask the Lord to change you based upon the truth of the Scripture. God, we love you. Today, we're so thankful. I'm thankful that you spoke to people and they wrote it down and now we have it. I'm thankful that you shared your heart with generations before us and we have access to those words. And God, I pray for every person in the room today that may be looking at you through an experience, that may be looking at you through an emotion, I may be looking at you through the culture. Lord, would you just strip that away in us? Would you one more time hold us in your hand and breathe over us the breath of life that we may live? So many people, God tempted to cut out entire books of the Bible because they're hurt because they're lost because they're confused God we just declare today that we trust you and whatever you want to show me about yourself in this life then do it I'm not trying to know it all. I'm not trying to understand it all. And I'm not going to be derailed by theological mystery. I'm not going to stop serving you because somebody hurt my feelings. I'm just going to trust you and lean into you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we stand all across the building today? As you're doing that, I want to just tell you a little bit. In the back areas, we have some tables, and on those tables are some communion cups. Self-serve. Sometimes we serve it fresh up front. I didn't choose to do that today, but we have self-serve in the back. There's also prayer cards back there. You can write out a prayer request. 
stick it in the container beside it, and you can do that anonymously. We're just going to pray over them, okay? It's just a way for us to know what's going on with you and pray over it. And so during this song, you can either worship, you can go take communion, or you can fill out a prayer card and just move around and have freedom. But I want us to do that today and just let, let the Lord seal this message in our hearts in this moment, okay?